Welcome to the At The Coalface podcast with your host, Jason Greenwood. This podcast is all about what it's really like in the trenches of digital and e-commerce. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the At The Coalface podcast. And it's my pleasure to welcome James Taylor, who's the founder and CEO of Particular Audience, to the pod. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me, Jason. My absolute pleasure, brother. And uh, look, I followed you. I followed you for quite a long time. I actually think probably longer than even we've been connected on LinkedIn. And look, I'm a big fan of the content that you guys are putting out and what you're doing for the industry. You're based in Bondi, in Sydney, and you guys obviously have particular audience. That's your baby, and which is an e-commerce personalization technology platform. And you guys are doing some pretty big things, making some big waves. You've taken on some funding that that made big waves in the industry. I think TechCrunch was the first one to break the news in November of last year that you took in 7.5 million in investment from VC uh, investment and obviously looking to grow the business really quickly and doing some amazing things. Yeah, that's a great overview. Yeah, 7.5 uh, USD, 10, 10 million Australian dollars announced in November and been hard at work trying to spend that on growth and additional headcounts and new offices since. Which is fun, right? When you think about the fact that everybody in tech right now is scrambling for devs, scrambling for talent, scrambling for a few gray hairs along uh, alongside all the young guns that are in the industry like yourself. I'm, I put myself in the former category of the gray hairs <laughs> and I put you in the latter category of the young guns. <laughs> and you've been doing this for four and a half years now with particular audience and obviously got it to a, a place of growth where VCs see an opportunity there. And tell me a little bit about particular audience. I've got my own ideas about what you guys do and how you do it. I've never actually implemented particular audience before, so I don't have a deep firsthand knowledge of implementing it. But Tell me about particular audience and tell me what makes it different from other personalization tech out there. So we're, as you said, Sydney headquartered. We're an Australian technology company. We opened our London office back in 2019. Europe actually makes up more than half of our revenue today. We just opened Vancouver last year and we are in the process of opening New York as we speak. We're also expanding to an Amsterdam office. So really have that broad geographical coverage. And in terms of what we actually do, you mentioned we're a personalization platform. So that is not a personalization platform that would greet you by your first name when you return to a website. That's not what we're doing. We believe that effective personalization is more orientated around products. You're most interested in products when you go to an e-commerce site and the data that we have on products which products get compared with one another, which products get bought together, which products are visually similar to one another, have similar attributes. That's a really robust data set. So what we're actually able to do by using uh, affinities and relationships between product data is provide a highly effective personalization of search, merchandise, and recommendations without compromising any personally identifiable information. We do not depend on tenuous guesswork around customer segments or cohorts and trying to overfit a message to those groups. It's true one-to-one personalization based on your clickstream. Awesome stuff. Now I've had Jim Lofgren from Nosto on the pod before, and I've actually implemented Nosto before as a retailer. And as a consultant and in my agency experience, I've implemented various different search and merch technology, personalized product recommendation technology. I've got some experience in this space, but as I said, not 
directly with your platform. And I always say when businesses come to me and they say, hey, Jason, help us pick our next search and merch tech or our product recommendations tech. It's one of those probably spaces within the commerce stack that, as I see it, is probably one of the most misunderstood, but it's also one of the ones that's hardest to differentiate going in when you're trying to help a brand figure out what piece of technology is a good fit for them for search, merch, and product recs, because oftentimes those technologies are a little bit separate in the stack. So you've got really advanced site search technologies, and then you have some pretty hyper-advanced product recommendation technologies and personalization AI. And then you have the the tenuous middle, right? Where you, if you're running Shopify, for example, you can install an app with some basic product recommendations, both a, uh, manual and automated, an app that costs you 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks a month. But there's really a pretty big gap between the on-site search and say product recommendation panels of your average e-commerce platform, even if it's a SaaS platform, high-end technologies, of search and merch of which I'd put you into that class of that sort of enterprise search merch product rec technology and then that fat middle and so it feels very much like you're targeting the higher end of the market with a more premium product more advanced AI associated or at least with machine learning associated with it and that's that feels like the market you're targeting with your technology and where you're obviously seeing some big wins yeah I think that's really accurate the way that we often think about the market is as you say at the bottom end you have those platform applications, uh, 100% self-service, suitable to fill a block on a page, but perhaps not the most advanced technology, uh, which you'd expect if it's uh, an app that you could just plug in and, and run with. Right. And uh, would, you, would you think of yourself as trying to be both the best of smart product recommendation technology and the best of site search technology think of yourself as like a, a an amalgamation and i'm sure you're gonna you're gonna hate this comparison but if we were to take algolia and mate it with nosto we might have something that that approximates something like particular audience and you may again you may hate that comparison but i'm guessing you're trying to win in both of those technology spheres which they don't always connect in, in our world that that's exactly the thing right you want them singing off the same hymn sheet from a data perspective. We want to be interpreting the, the same click streams that a customer has shown us. And we want to be showing relevant recommendations that tie into relevant personalized search as well. Search signals can have an influence on recommendations. And I think the bigger piece as well is you, you have, let's say you have a completely flawless personalized front-end experience through every product list on the website from search to recommendations. The additional thing to remember is that retailers have their own business goals. They have overstocked items that they want to show more often in relevant journeys before they have to put them on markdown. They have higher margin stock, own brand items, brand partnerships that they wish to promote. Particular audience gives them one place to layer in those boost collections that can then impact search and recommendations and merchandising all from the same place. So it makes sense that not only is the personalization feeding off the same data and impacting the same experience through a product discovery journey, but where the retailer is also wanting to influence how their merchandising products should come from one place as well. And that's really how a particular audience is creating its own niche in the market. And I'm guessing that you're taking multiple signals from multiple waypoints along the clickstream data journey, such as product added to wishlist, product added to compare, product added to cart, product purchased, 
categories visited, all of the associated cross-sell and upsell logic that a brand may want to have, as you say, whether that be, say, for example, enhancing and promoting and merchandising an owned house brand over some of the other brands that they carry across equivalent categories, or whether it's category-specific promotions where, in some instances, when a customer visits a website, you may they may not be authenticated when they first get to the website. And as a result of that, you're going to really be furnishing them with wisdom of the crowd recommendations as opposed to once they've authenticated, you then can get to a much more one-to-one level of personalization. Is that reasonably accurate? Yeah, I think if, let's say you've got 10,000 products on a website, as soon as a new customer interacts with even one of those items, a huge amount about that customer, because of all the other customers that interacted with that item, we know with a high degree of statistical certainty, what things they tend to do next. So absolutely using the wisdom of the crowd piece. If we actually flip that idea on its head, so you're talking about a customer being new or returning or having a click stream from a given customer. We can apply that same concern to items on the website as well. When you add a new item to a website, you actually don't have any behavioral data on that item. When items exist far down the long tail, you don't have the same scale of interaction data as you do in more popular items. So you have this cold start problem with items as well, which means that they don't get discovered as often because they're not shown in wisdom of the crowd, behavioral informed recommendation systems. They don't rank for popularity yet. So we also, through, you mentioned types of AI, it's not just wisdom of the crowd. We also have computer vision. We also have natural language processing. And that allows us to identify the visual similarity between items. So that if that single item that you've interacted with as a new customer happens to be a floral patterned dress, we know even out of items that have zero behavioral data on them, which are most visually similar. Or if you're looking at a specific power tool, we know even of the items that have no engagement data on them yet, which have the most attribute similarity or specifications born out of the natural language processing. I was trying to do a little bit more research and deep dive on whether you have any out-of-the-box integrations with technologies, for example, like Ocular, where some brands they have a dearth or a complete lack of structured product data in their system. And even when it comes to unstructured product data, short descriptions, long descriptions, sometimes those are lacking in terminology and messaging that allows you to create that associated word map or attribute map with a product to be able to start making those direct associations between products and the specific customer journeys that those products have been taken on throughout the buyer journey or throughout the browse and shop journey. And what I'm thinking is, obviously, Ocular fills that gap, as you probably well know, famous Australian-based technology, which can help brands at scale, you know, with large catalogs in particular, auto-tag some of the key attributes of their products, particularly around products that have a strong visual component like fashion that have certain styling, a certain cut, certain color, a certain pattern, et cetera. It can automatically tag those products with that structured data that's relevant to those products, which then allows technology like yours to work even better versus in an environment where the product data may not be that great. It may not be that extensive. It may not be organized organized that well. And they may not even really have, when you could start to work with a brand, I'm guessing that there's sometimes you go in and work with a brand and they've got fantastic product data organized extremely well. And I'm see, I'm sure you see the opposite end of the spectrum, much like I do. And you go in and you go, oh dear Lord, we're going to have to, we're going to have to do some work on this product data before we can ensure that our technology actually performs up to the level we know it's capable of. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The, the quality of data in obviously impacts the performance of models. Generally, I would say that there is a real mix. We have quality data feeds in some instances. We have much poorer quality in other instances where we either conduct the feed services ourselves and we will fix data mismatched columns. Generally, I would say that a, a, a technology like Ocular that can create tags for the product feed can help there. However, the machine learning often can skip the step of officially tagging something. If you're thinking about how a machine learning model calculates similarity between items, it's better to do it off distance vectors than it is to have to formalize tags just because we as humans can interpret that tag and then match that against other tags because you can end up with oversimplification, overfitting for yep. a prediction model. So unless you have a reason to use those tags, which of course there are plenty of reasons why you might want to tag and organize items, then sometimes it's best to let the machine learning do its work without at some point in that data pipeline, translating it into a tag that a human can read just for the sake of it. Now, I've also seen scenarios where different type of personalization technology, and I'm thinking of technology like Fred Hopper and a few others, where they purport to be able to do some of the things you've just described, some of the search, some of the merch technology, some of the product rec technology, but then they oftentimes will want to go one step further and they're going to want to own the category display, right? Because they're going to want to own all the faceting and filtering instead of just owning it on the SRP, the search results page, which is where obviously search and merch tends to be really strong and they can own that search results page and it can be enhanced and it can be merchandised by the site search manager or the personalization manager on a website, it's equally important that we can merchandise within categories as well. And instead of just having a, say, a product recommendation panel on a category level page, we actually want to merchandise within that category. We want to control the faceting and the attributes that are exposed on that category so that we don't get cognitive overload showing facets and filters that are not relevant to products on that page. And so really there is there's been this disconnect for many years in e-commerce, and I've seen this across the technology layer. It's not just the search layer being disconnected oftentimes from the personalization and product recommendation layer, but it's a further separation between those two layers and the category experience layer. And yet those, there's massive overlaps in between all three of those experiences that really in a perfect world would be data informed and would be data driven. And so do you guys step into that gap as well and say, hey, look, if you want us to, we can actually take over category merchandising and display. We'll take that over from the e-commerce platform and we'll generate dynamic category pages, which are basically like category specific SRPs. And we'll drive that experience and make it as similar to our search results experience as we can with adding also layering in all that category data as well. It's actually incredible hearing you say that it, it sounds like the exact conversations that are new Patrick, who's, who's just joined to lead product, has been having with the various engineering teams, the search team, the recommendations team over the past couple of weeks. Because, of course, you absolutely should think of it as a hybridized approach between personalized product recommendations and search engine results pages. The way of rendering can, of course, as you say, be a recommendations panel on a specific category. Even if you go to surf stitch and go to dresses, you'll see that there's a particular audience 
recommendation panel within dresses, which is personalized to you and has additional functionality where you can click a button to inject similar items in the row. But we're not currently overtaking the entire category page in that instance. There are other implementations where we can use JavaScript overlays that take over the entire user experience and personalize the entire category page in line with the facets and filter limitations that you uh, just cited to reduce that uh, cognitive overload. And then, of course, you have API solutions that allow full server-side rendering uh, or even reverse proxy rendering in some instances, which we're actually releasing in about the middle of this year. Good stuff. And I'm guessing that really, in a, when we're talking about, it, it's a very different world in my experience when we're talking about on-prem platforms, say your Magento, your PrestaShop, your other more enterprise on-prem platforms and modern SaaS platforms, right? Because there's limits on really what you can do in those SaaS environments because you can't actually do any server-side work. You can't override any server-side logic because you don't have access to the platform servers themselves, what typically happens is, you, as you say, we've got this JavaScript you know, snippet, which effectively through custom implementation and custom, designed, custom designs by the e-commerce development partner on that SaaS platform, they effectively through the templating engine, so whether that be Liquid in the case of Shopify or Stencil in the case of e-commerce or any other core theming engine technology of a SaaS platform, really what they're doing is they're effectively removing or hiding or obscuring the underlying category generation logic. They're completely removing that from the theme and they're, they're plugging in your JavaScript-based logic instead. And effectively at that point, you then are taking over control and display and rendering of the mega menu. And then obviously any of the pages that come off and fall out of that mega menu. And then really you've got almost two choices from there, right? In terms of implementation, you've effectively almost got one iframe, which would be a page hosted by the platform themselves. And then effectively your experience is rendered as an iframe within that, or really it can be a page hosted directly by the search and merch technology itself, and then effectively all the redirects go back to the PDPs on the e-commerce platform itself for final add to cart and purchasing. And, and then obviously if they want to add to cart from a category page that you host, then obviously we got cart to cart stuff going on in terms of cart integration where it's got to add via API anything added from a page that you host. It's got to add it by a cart to cart API to the e-commerce e cart so that when you go to checkout, all those products are showing in the cart. So do you have any thoughts about in this increasingly sassified world where we got Shopify off the hook, we got big commerce off the hook, we got VTEX growing fast, we got Salesforce Commerce Cloud, SaaS is just eating the software world one byte at a time and big chunks at a time. And it, it creates a quite challenging environment for technology like yours where you want to take over some things, but you don't want to take over others. So what is your view of the world in light of these SaaS technologies just growing in power and, and reach? Yeah. Amazing detail there. I think that you touch on that complexity of what's going on behind the scenes, the SaaS and sort of JavaScript implementations like ours abstract away for the client. I think that, tell me whether you've experienced the same thing. I think it depends on the retailer. Some retailers have next to no in-house technical capability. Some retailers have extensive in-house technical capability and want to be 100% API everything rendered themselves on the front end. So it depends who is using the technology. So our JavaScript snippet really opened up that mid-market to lower enterprise segment for us because we can build the JavaScript tracking tag. 
we can ingest the data. We train the models and then we can render the JavaScript widgets, injected div elements, entire page overlays, search experiences onto a retailer's website, no matter what platform they're using. And it's super lightweight for them because all they had to do was copy and paste a JavaScript tracking tag into their tag management solution and everything else was done for them. Now you compare that to a upper enterprise client who is running extensive multivariate testing has their internal development team or external agency in many cases who want far more control over that front end. They don't want unnecessary tags on the front end. They are changing their developments and selectors and IDs and classifiers too frequently to have any kind of third-party tracking. They need full control over sending the data somewhere, training a model and simply requesting that for results in how they then render their front end. Couldn't agree more. And so in that scenario where somebody is either running a headless implementation or they have a highly customized front end on a monolithic SaaS platform, I'm guessing that they can effectively hit your API, you can send back a JSON response, and then they can format and render that in any fashion that they like. That's right. Now, in, in many API implementations, it's as simple as saying, this is an endpoint and this is an algorithm. If you wish to implement your own fullback logic or hybridize use of different algorithms together, typically that then goes back to the uh, retailer's side to build that logic. We also have a capability within that endpoint in the API to bake in fullback tactics and waterfall logic for them. So even though they're rendering the entire front end, running their own analytics, on the front end, they ping our endpoint. Behavioral wisdom of the crowd data being typically the highest performing uh, recommendation algorithm. But if a given item only has two or three results and you need to fill five to 10 slots in a carousel, you need to be able to fall back to another tactic such as computer vision, such as NLP or some other sort of personalized recommendation logic. So we also provide that service that behind our endpoints, we can construct custom waterfalls of different logic. And that can be, can that be on a per placement basis? So let's say we're, we're talking about a simpler JavaScript snippet based implementation, but let's say on category X, we want to have primary logic A, fallback logic B, fallback logic C, uh, and then category Z, we want to have different primary logic A, different fallback logic B and C. Because for example, let's say, let's just take fashion for an example. And we, we've got seasonality at play here. And we want to do certain things on a dresses category versus, say, a, a shoes category. And we want the logic and the rules around those recommendation placements and panels to be unique to that specific category or that specific placement. Is that something that can be managed within your platform as well? Yeah, definitely. The I think one of the things that we really pride ourselves on is it's creating that flawless, personalized user experience that's trying to guarantee as much relevancy as possible to each individual customer but it's also giving the retailers that dexterity over how they treat different categories and how they merchandise their websites based on business rules. And even within that idea of seasonality and dresses and wanting to push stock that they know is soon not going to be purchased because we're going into winter, let's say, the very fact that we can allow a retailer to boost within personalization and improve exposure of items also translates to something which you mentioned Algolia Nosto earlier. We also do things that 
they do not do at all. So within these kind of merchandising rules, that's a bit more akin to how the sort of rules, cocktails and Fred Hopper work. But on top of that, we also have things like retail media. So retail media is where as a multi-brand retailer, you may also want to open up that platform or certain widgets around the website to your suppliers, the brands that you sell, for them to actually pay you, the retailer, money to boost their items within personalized journeys or bid on keywords on your website. So you add that layer to the personalization and suddenly you have this extremely high margin incremental revenue stream as a retailer as well. That's uh, That feels like a no-brainer. Well done. That makes sense. Now, so we, we talked about those three primary gaps that you guys either fill currently or are looking to very rapidly fill, which is that primary site search function, the search results page experience, the product recommendations panels, and, and where those are embedded throughout the site and the experience associated with that, the primary cat category experience and whether that's simply category specific recommendations or whether that's full ownership of the entire category journey and merchandising products within that feed as it were on that category we've got this whole nother field or this whole other uh, two other fields that i say are oftentimes either ignored altogether or they're oftentimes overlooked both by brands and by tech vendors that play such an important part in the brand experience and the brand journey and really need to be tied in with this concept of product level AI and experience level AI, and that is UGC and content, right? So we need really to be able to merchandise content in a personalized way and in a journey specific way. And we also need to be able to merchandise UGC in a journey specific way and with logic and rules and fallbacks associated with it. And that's long been the holy grail of content and commerce. And that's why headless experiences are becoming more common. They're, they're probably, it's more buzz than anything, but really that's, I guess, part of the promise of headless is saying, hey, we can maybe have a headless content platform, a contentful or prismic or whatever. We can have a headless commerce platform, a big commerce tools, whatever. And then we can create this completely custom front-end journey and take in logic from platforms like yours and we can create a highly customized highly informed customer experience where we're recommending where it almost feels like there's a crystal ball we almost feels like we're reading the customer's mind we almost know what they want before they do with a high level of creepiness factor in some respects and we're going to put something in front of them that we think is highly appropriate for them based on both wisdom of the crowd and their specific journey and experience with our brand to date if we've been tracking it from that point as an authenticated customer. But what we haven't done is seamlessly injected content into that experience journey that's relevant based on content that's associated with products or not, and also UGC that's associated with, with products or not. And so do you guys have a vision of whether that be right now or on your roadmap where we're saying, hey, we, we understand products inside now, we understand product attributes inside now, we have great machine vision, we have great machine learning, we can do this. We've got great AI that's creating great journeys and we see lifts in conversion and retention, et cetera. But we realize that content and UGC has to become tightly interwoven with these journeys, otherwise it's incomplete. Is that on your radar? Great question. Great summarization as well of, of that dynamic personalized layer on top of all of these e-com platforms. And, and just to extend on that, I think that something we often say is personalization wins when you don't even have to use search. So if you can land on a website and it's got the item you're looking for there and then, and the cross sells to it before you purchase, you've, you've got a convenient and effective personalization 
implementation. I think Netflix, let's say 85% of the content consumed on Netflix is all through recommendations, not search. And that's a sort of delta to try and chase as a retailer. But to your question about content and user-generated content, well, user-generated content, reviews, ratings, those sorts of things obviously have real tangible value. Pulling stuff from social, there's some element of risk there if you don't govern what content is showing. And I think it's very specific to the type of brand that's happy to have or use that content. We work with several fashion brands and they're very pro showing that content with some element of curation. And I think curation is probably the important point there. Do you really want that totally automated or is there going to be some risk perhaps to the experience that you want to portray as a retailer? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. It's just an unfinished discussion, I would say. Yep. From a content standpoint, you can go to Chris Shop, which is Singapore Airlines loyalty point store, uh, which is one of our clients. And if you, through the navigation, click on brands, it will drop down and it will show you brands, usually starting alphabetically with Apple as the first one and going down from there. If I then look at uh, whiskey items, let's say, if I go back and click on that navigation pane again, say brands, you'll notice that the order of the brands have completely re-ranked based on my clickstream. So you'll probably see the Suntory and other whiskey brands top. Now you can extend that to any kind of content pane in the way that we do it. That does come back to, okay, but how do you organize large amounts of banner content, which is usually quite subjective, usually has imagery, usually has text, copy, sometimes different call to actions. There is some element again of, can you use an automated tagging platform for that? Or should you be doing that manually? Obviously we hate to suggest that anything should ever be done manually. There are ways to do it in the way that we do it for the menu personalization on Chris Shop. Then it depends on the retail. And then it also depends on how much data you have on that customer. So I say we have clickstream data, but what if we don't? What if you're landing on a fashion website and Jason, you are a guy. You probably want to see more male orientated content rather yep. than a hybridized landing page. Well, there are ways that we can do that. For example, Quantcast have extensive segment data from tracking tags that they have on over hundred million websites, lots of publisher sites in that hundred million. And they can tell us or a website with a high degree of let's say 87% degree of certainty that your gender is male. Yep. That can then inform the content that's showing on the front end. The bigger question here, and the question that's certainly on my mind when I think about, well, do I invest in that as a productized area is how much does that depend on third-party cookies? And do I want to invest in anything that has anything to do with third-party cookies when they're not going to exist uh, two years from last month? What are you, I guess that's a, a very good leading question that you've pretty much thrown in the mix there. Are you guys working on effectively creating your own cookies as first party cookies on behalf of the brand to help with your tracking and identification and logic? Or are you effectively running a completely cookie-less environment? It's fully cookie-less, but there is a role for first party cookies for identifying a returning customer, let's say, and right. tying that to a click stream of that customer. So we do not use any third-party cookies. And other than that customer ID cookie, which can help us identify if somebody is returning, which is first-party, there's no other need for cookies right now. And how do you, so do you differentiate 
if, uh, for example, let's say you're on, I don't know, let's say you're running Shopify. Do you guys differentiate between, or how do you, dif- I guess the question, the, the appropriate question here is, how do you di- differentiate between authenticated and unauthenticated customers? And are you able to store across multiple sessions, better quality data, more specific data, more targeted data. If somebody, if you track the multiple separate, for example, authenticated sessions, they come, they log in, they either shop and maybe buy or don't. And then a month later, they come back, they log in, they either shop or don't or buy or don't. But are you able to create more one-to-one level personalization in an authenticated customer account environment versus an unauthenticated account environment? Technically, yes. I think it depends on the type of retail. If you are a book retailer, I could viably build a prediction model around a sequence of books that you might be likely to buy across a three-year period. I can see that journey of knowledge, and I know that of everybody else that's followed that sequence, they've then gone on to do this. Okay, you bought that, they've then gone on to do this. I think it's a little bit different for changing contexts. You think about fashion changes, seasonality. There's still groupings of items that are obviously relevant within a style, but things do change over time. So it gets more or less effective depending on the type of product a retailer is selling. Now, do we, as a particular audience, want to track that customer's login? Do we want to track that email address? No, we do not. We do not want to be touching any personally identifiable information at all. Certainly outside of Australia, in North America, in Europe, it's getting extremely treacherous to even store that data. So we do not do that. But there are highly capable CDPs that do all that for you. And you can make certain data available to us, even if it's an obfuscated encrypted ID. We can't know anything about the customer on the other end of it, but we can tie that ID to data that we have on their clickstream and what we understand about that clickstream. So there, there are ways for websites to give us more context on a long-term returning customer without us needing to know anything about who that customer is. That makes total sense. And I agree with you. I think PII is shark infested waters and, and anything we can do to be base things on an, a, a universal ID of some variety that traverses systems without necessarily needing to have know somebody's name or whatever the case may be. And so we're not, we're, we're, we're treating them as an entity that's shopping with us as opposed to in this particular case, a person that we need to know every single thing about their personal life. We're treating them as a discrete entity that we're interacting with. And we're presenting, hopefully, the best customer experience we can for that entity, whoever they may be. Even if they were a bot, for example, that was traversing the internet, we want to create the right experience for the bot as well. So what we're saying is we want to personalize this as much as possible whilst respecting user privacy as as best we can. And then I guess when it comes to the marketing automation journey, I'm guessing that some of the data that you guys generate could essentially go back into the CDP in a circular way. So CDP can provide you with some data. You can provide the CDP with some data because typically the CDP is the platform that's connected to the marketing automation platform. So whether that's whether the CDP has a marketing automation platform built in or whether they integrate with something like Clavio or something like that or Emarcy's or whatever, the reality is that some of your data from product recommendations, it would be ideal if we could provide the right product recommendations in the email experience, for example, as well, as opposed to just the on-site experience. So can you speak to me a little bit or share with us a little bit what your concept is for your technology outside of the pure e-com experience, both in terms of marketing automation and other channels? So 
how do we start to take your capabilities and how do we start to inject those capabilities into other digital channels outside of the pure e-commerce front-end experience? Yeah, great question. So there's, uh, in our documentation, there's a very easy way. I think it's a pretty much one line of code script that allows you to query our customer ID that we have for any given customer on your website. That just becomes an additional variant that you have within your CDP. And then anytime you want to know what the most relevant products are on the website at any given time for that customer, you can just ping our API with the customer ID and we will return a user-orientated set of product recommendations for you to include in any medium, SMS, email, however you're talking to your customers. So really, you do see yourself as a, a component of that broader CDP environment, for lack of a better term, where you guys are collecting and collating and understanding certain customer data in ways that no other part of the technology stack is. And that can be shared with a CDP and associated with those entities within the CDP in a structured way. And they can just deal with that via API and go to work. And then when it comes to marketing automation, brands, so do you have a direct integration already out of the box with something like Klaviyo in case a brand doesn't yet have a CDP? Do you have a native out of the box integration with the Klaviyo or any other marketing automation platform? So it's drag and drop ready to go? Not yet. We have built everything to be platform agnostic, partner agnostic. Everything is either that JavaScript on-site implementation or the server-side API implementation or API that are available to a CDP or some layer of code in between us and somebody's marketing automation platform. Absolutely, I think about where particular audiences in the funding cycle. We've just done our Series A. That's where you've exhibited strong product market fit and you're ready to put more fuel on the fire and scale the business. I think that direct integrations with specific partners will come from demand when enough customers want something like that. And we have done, say, our Series B, that is the time that you can start really going deep on one or a few or all platforms in some way. Ben, you've got to be, you've got to be customer-led and as opposed to being product-led, I guess, to a degree you got to be customer and project led. So where the demand is, you'll plug that gap of demand. You'll meet that demand. You'll meet the market. Make makes total sense. Now you've got a very interesting background. I would normally talk about this at the start of the podcast, but we just jumped straight into some super exciting stuff. So I skipped over this, but you've got a very eclectic background. Some of it is tech. Some of it's that retail tech space, but you also come out of that finance space, right? Out of London, being a, a business analyst and a financial analyst, and then working for some of the big banks and financial companies in the UK. And obviously, the, I'm guessing that some of that experience has served you well as you've gone out to the capital markets looking for funding and helped you navigate that with some sort of background experience in it. But how did you land on this piece of technology in particular and e-commerce e specifically as a space you knew you wanted to get into? When I actually started in investment banking after university, I actually moved out to Mumbai, India. And I worked on cross-border mergers and acquisitions. So Indian companies that were acquiring or disposing assets overseas. And at that time in India, you had websites like makemytrip.com, you know, now massive travel aggregators uh, in their relative infancy. Very exciting space. I certainly found that area of technology and, and e-commerce 
more exciting than some of the industrials deals or call center deals that I had exposure to as well. Moving back to London with the same bank and working there, it was at the time that Facebook was IPOing. There was just a lot of excitement in the market around technology. And I just began to question that perhaps I'd chosen the wrong path going into finance. So the more that I started to ideate and I actually had a, a startup that I left banking to, to, to go full time on, uh, which was called Wager. It was an online betting exchange concept. It was all user-generated markets, no bookmaker in it at all. It was more just peer-to-peer markets platform. Unfortunately, that didn't really work out. It was a highly regulated space and you need an extremely large amount of upfront capital to, to get going. And I must've been about 24 or 25 when I tried to do that. So that unfortunately didn't work out. I then took a job in a startup in London that was growing insanely quickly. That was Yieldify, which did a type of rules-based personalization and, and social proof. A lot of those sort of exit intent pop-ups that you see on some websites, discounting. And that was my exposure to software behind e-commerce and e-commerce experiences. And the more I learned about that space, the more I found it interesting to learn how does Amazon do their personalization? How does Netflix and Spotify do their content personalization? What, what equates to a truly personalized user experience? And specifically, what is the, the data, the robust data that you can use to make those predictions? And overwhelmingly and counterintuitively for personalization, it was not customer data and customer segments. It was product data, product similarity, which items are complementary to one another. And then you needn't know anything in particular about a customer, but the item or sequence of items they've engaged with to make the most effective prediction. And the analogy that I often give is Prince Charles and Ozzy Osbourne have the same demographic profiles, but obviously they have extremely different tastes. And that flipped on its head is the items that they engage with are completely different. And therefore a customer coming to a website is not their demographic. It is the items they show interested in that journey. And I guess that, you know, that to use your analogy and extend it to the Netflix environment, for example, I guess if I go to Netflix and I open up my Netflix app and I'm a Netflix subscriber, and if I nine out of 10 times, I choose a, a horror movie as my movie of choice, then it's a pretty good bet that I like horror movies and that you're going to want to elevate horror movies to the top of the list. And you're going to want to email me when you add a new horror movie to your catalog with Netflix or Netflix produces a Netflix original that happens to be a horror. Totally. And I think that concept of the Netflixation of e-commerce is really what got me to start a particular audience. And you, I'm sure, are grateful that when you do open Netflix and that most relevant bit of content is sitting there right in front of you for you to click on, you've just saved 10 minutes having to browse and try and find something that you might be interested in watching that day. And, and I, I don't actually know the number of pieces of content on Netflix right now, but I can tell you that without that personalization, it would be a completely unnavigable platform. Absolutely. No question about it. Even the, even if the search results experience itself was pretty decent, even trawling through hundred matches in a scroll environment on a phone is not incredibly ple pleasant, is it? Have you ever even noticed if you search for a, a movie on Netflix that they don't have, they're very good in their search results at showing you the most relevant movies to the movie that you search for that they do not show? 100%. And it's from what I can tell, it's based on two factors. 
the actors in that movie that you are looking for and the genre of the movie itself. Totally. Yeah. And th th those are, those would be attributes. So that, that ties into what we do with products from a natural language processing standpoint, but also if they have access to the collaborative filtering data, then as in the movies that people tend to interact with perhaps on another platform online, such as Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb, then they are still able to say, actually, we know a large amount of people that reviewed this item on IMDb also reviewed these items on IMDb. So they can start to infer relationships between things that way. Absolutely love it. How do you guys make your money? You're, you're a SaaS platform. And do you charge by searches? Do you charge by the different modules that a brand takes on? But how do you guys, how do you guys, how do you guys make your money? Highly modular, as you say, we have typical flat fee SaaS pricing options that have clearly defined service level agreements, reporting. That's when we do a full implementation. You also have specifically within recommendations, CPA pricing options, where we take a margin on items that we help get discovered and drive to sale. Different retailers tend to have different preferences between those two models, obviously with search and merchandising they tend to lend, the, the flat fee pricing tends to lend itself to those. From an API standpoint, we can have entirely usage-based pricing. That is customers pay per thousand requests to the API, which means that they can start with a cost of zero and simply scale up the more they actually use the product. And then in retail media, it actually doesn't cost a retailer anything at all. They earn ads ad revenue from the brands that are promoting their items within relevant search and recommendations as permitted by that specific retailer in that specific area of that retailer's website. So they have total control, but it becomes an earning opportunity for them rather than a cost center. Almost like a referral program. It's the best thing I would say comparable is, is Amazon sponsored products. So if somebody types in dog food on Amazon, there's a lot of marketplace sellers and there's a lot of brands that might want to appear top of those search results because Amazon represents such a high proportion of on-site searches from high intent shoppers in that area. They're willing to pay on a cost per click basis, just like Google AdWords. And when you start to think about a segment of the market that is not Amazon and is not Google, then that would be the rest of the dog food retailers in that particular geography. The advertisers at those dog food brands that are paying for Amazon sponsored product clicks or Google AdWords clicks are just as interested as paying the retailers of dog food products in aggregate to promote their items on there as well, because it's at the moment of intent, high consideration in market shoppers that they can access. So they can monetize traffic to their website in almost like a display ad kind of way. Exactly. But it's not a display ad. It's totally organic. The items are still relevant to whatever the search or recommendations would have shown anyway. We're just guaranteeing that the sponsored products appear higher up. And exactly as you say, currently a retailer typically only monetizes their customers when they make a sale. We can help you monetize the clicks from 100% of your customers. Amazing stuff. Absolutely love it. Now, what is the, as we're coming to the close of our time together, and I do appreciate all the time that you've spent 
with me today. It's been really fun. It's been enjoyable. It's been eye-opening for me and enlightening, and I do appreciate it. Now, Web3 is obviously all the buzz, and we're entering into a brave new world of opportunity here, and we're entering into a new brave new world of the metaverse and 3D and cryptocurrencies and NFTs and all the rest, and it's getting a little crazy. Certainly, Web3 was the buzzword of the year, I think, for 2021, at least the latter half of 2021, along with logistics. And we're talking about a totally new way of interacting with the internet and with each other. And I just love just very some very high level thoughts from you. We're not going to spend a huge amount of time on this. Probably warrants another podcast episode together if we do. What's your initial thinking on Web3? What do you think, you know, is in store in the next, say, 6 to 12? And are you already thinking about ways in which particular audience can work and function and be relevant in a metaverse-driven Web3 world? Awesome. So a particular audience, when it was initially incorporated, was incorporated under the name Animantic, which is a word mash of the word analogous, which is to have similarity between items, and semantic. And a lot of the buzz around Web3 has been highly blockchain-centric. But I do think it's really important to remember that the concept of Web3 has traditionally always been built around the semantic web. That is an internet that is highly intuitive, highly intelligent, and it understands what you want or what is going to be most relevant to you given your current context. So Web3 is not just blockchain. Blockchain is just one piece of it. The other parts are the semantic internet, AI and machine learning, spatial, so the interfaces within which you interact with digital, so currently laptops, browsers, mobile devices, increasingly augmented reality, wearables, virtual reality, physical, so the internet of things, ubiquitous data, so availability of data in in many places, decentralization and trustless. So it's only those last two pieces that are blockchain orientated. Now, I would describe particular audience long-term as being the non-blockchain Web3 play. We were set up to build the semantic web. We specialize in AI and machine learning that is orientated around understanding analogous relationship between items, understanding which items are similar, which items are complementary, what the sequence of interactions we expect from someone to be on the web, and specifically, how can that be done on a cross-domain or cross-platform basis. We've already touched on the fact that you can no longer or won't be able to track people cross-domain using third-party cookies. So how might that behave in the future? We expect that when you go with your data portability between platforms, there is going to be you owning your clickstream, you owning your own customer ID. Sharded, you can provide a portion of that data to the destination website. And that website or app or whatever that endpoint is needs to know how to interpret that data. So that data ubiquity relies on a platform to interpret that data across any domain or app or platform that somebody chooses to go to and share that data with. Now, we also have a consumer product called Similar. And similar is a Chrome extension and similar is increasingly going to demonstrate the capabilities of data portability. It will not be the retailer necessarily that is owning all of that customer data and trying to personalize their isolated island of a website to that customer. 
but that customer is going to have a personalized experience of how they interact with the web, similar to how you see Netflix to be personalized to you, but Netflix is still one platform. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the whole internet was as personalized to you as consistently as standalone platforms like Netflix are? And that really is where we are taking particular audience to be trained on cross-domain data sets uh, that can actually interpret customer data from across the web as they choose to provide permission to access it, when they choose to provide permission to access it, and for as long as they choose to provide access to that data. Love where your head's at with this and, and love the stuff that you're working on. It sounds very exciting. It sounds very relevant as you're trying to provide relevant results and recommendations to e-commerce customers. You're trying to ensure and working very hard to ensure that you are relevant to those end consumers in your technology set, as well as relevant to merchants who are trying to stay relevant to their own customers. So you're an essential block in the chain. And, and I think you're doing something that's really important. I think you're doing something that's critical. We didn't get a chance to talk about a surprise and delight and how that plays into what you do. And, and I think that we'll save that for another discussion, but I'm going to start something new for, this is the first episode that I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it from now on. So you're the first episode that I'm going to do this with, and I'm going to open it up to you to ask me one question, any question you like as the last question of the pod. Oh, gosh. I can promise the audience that I have not come prepared for this question. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I love it. And that's what I love. I, I want it to be as raw and real as we can get it. Very good. Sorry to drop you right in the deep end, but... No, no uh, so, Jason, I've been following you on LinkedIn as well for ages. Really appreciate the content that you're putting out there. You're absolutely right going back to this Web3 theme. A lot of hype and buzz around it, especially at the end of 21. Where do you see it applying to retail? And you cannot answer me with Nike, Adidas, NFT star drops. Do you see retailers truly getting traction in some metaverse experience? And presumably that metaverse experience is not limited to virtual reality, but to augmented reality. Yep, absolutely. Great, fantastic question. And I totally do. And I think that what we're going to see is we're going to see the likes of Nike and Adidas creating those use cases because of the spend that they're putting into it, because even they don't know where this is going yet. And so therefore, they're willing to just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall to see what sticks because they got the deep pockets to be able to make that happen. But what I think is going to happen for retailers is they're going to be fast followers. Once they see how this starts to shake out over the next five to 10. So do I think that the metaverse is going to arrive in 2022, 2023, 2024? No, I, I don't think it is. For the vast majority of retailers, it's not going to be accessible. But just as today, retailers don't consume AI technology from AWS and sign up for AWS AI on demand, custom integrate that into their e-commerce stack of today, I don't think they're going to make a metaverse play. I don't think brands and retailers are going to make AR, VR, and metaverse plays on their own in the future as a consumable technology. I think they're going to, there's going to be platforms that emerge, much like we have Shopify and BigCommerce and Amazon and Facebook today. There are going to be metaverse platforms that emerge from the major tech players, as well as we have platforms today, as I said, like Shopify and BigCommerce, where brands don't have to build an e-commerce website from scratch now. They can partner with an e-commerce agency to do customization on those platforms, but the underlying plumbing is already there. It's part of the platform. They're not starting from a blank sheet of paper. I think we're, and we have that same multi-metaverse experience today, 
but in a smaller 2D environment in our browser, right? We have we might have five tabs open. We might have a retailer's website open. We might have their account open in in social. We might have their storefront open in Amazon, or we might just be shopping on Amazon for the same products all at the same time. And I think the metaverse is going to be very similar. I think that some brands will build their own completely standalone metaverse AR-based experience, AR and VR experience. But then there'll be other brands, just like there are Amazon native or Amazon only brands today, where they don't even have their own e-commerce website. They are a brand that is only on Amazon. I think we're going to have some metaverse only brands and some of those brands will choose to erect their VR experience inside the likes of Facebook. We've got obviously Facebook shops and Instagram shops now. We'll have Facebook and Instagram metaverse shops is, is what, I, what I suspect will happen ultimately. So long answer to your short question is, I think that yes, brands will go whole hog on the metaverse, but do I think it's going to happen in 22, 23? Absolutely not until there are accessible platforms that are cost effective and have all of the underlying plumbing plug and play ready to go then I think mainstream retailers will be able to get on board with it. Totally. And I think that when you talk about those cost-effective platforms for retailers, it's also, they're only going to be there when there's truly a mass market of eyeballs, right? And if you're going through that early adoption, the innovators, the early adopters, when does the mass market actually get involved? That's going to be related to the hardware and the interfaces that allow them to interact with new experiences. But to your point, and stuff we touched on earlier with headless commerce, and API-based architecture. Whether you're browsing a virtual mall in virtual reality, or whether I'm walking through the park and seeing augmented labels and notifications on top of my experience in the real world, that's still the same sort of search and recommendation software in the background that's gonna be understanding what to place in front of you. And I would go one step further, I couldn't agree with you more, and I would go one step further and say that the same underlying operational technology, let's just put it in that bucket, that brands need today to drive an effective and efficient and scalable omni-channel experience, they'll still need all that underlying technology in a metaverse future. Totally agree. You've still got to ship products to customers. You've still got to order in stock. You've still got to price it. You've still got to you still got to design it. You still have to curate it. You still have to do all those things. Listen, James, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I've really enjoyed it. I'm glad I asked that last question. I'm definitely going to incorporate it in all episodes moving forward. Really appreciate that. And look, I'd love to get you back on the pod another six, 12 months. I have no doubt that you're going to continue to grow and make waves. And I wish you all the best with particular audience. And uh, I'm going to be watching your moves closely, my friend. Thanks very much for joining me today. Jason, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the At The Coalface podcast. If you want more At The Coalface, you can subscribe to our premium e-commerce and digital newsletter, At The Coalface Digest.